0: You're listening to TIP.
1: The demand for chips is skyrocketing. So I'll I'll throw some figures out here. $470 billion was the global purchase of chips, the chips themselves back in 2018. And fast forward today in 2022, global chip sales were just shy of $600 billion. So it's a huge, huge market, just the chips themselves, almost $600 billion. And it's on its way to $1 trillion a year. Some estimates point to it being maybe $1.3 trillion every single year by 2030. So if you're looking for a growth industry for the next seven, eight years, that's a compound annual growth rate of seven to 10%, depending on if you want to use the $1 trillion or the $1.3 trillion estimate. It's a huge market.
0: On today's episode, I chat with Nick Rizzillo. Nick is the founder of Conkinus Financial. He's an investment portfolio manager and host of the Chip Stock Investor Show on YouTube. I brought on Nick to chat all about the semiconductor industry and to learn more about the best companies in this space as today our economy can be described as a chip economy where microchips have been applied to many technological advancements in different industries. And so Nick gives us an overview of the chip market, which industries are expected to drive the most growth in demand for chips in the future. He explains what the different types of chips are and which companies produce do switch types of chips and he walks us through a number of chip companies like NVIDIA, AMD, Qualcomm, Taiwan Semiconductor, as well as Texas Instruments and shares his thoughts on which companies he believes are undervalued at today's prices and so much more. So without further delay, I really hope you enjoyed today's episode you're listening to millennial investing by the investors podcast network where your hosts robert leonard and rebecca hotsko interview successful entrepreneurs business leaders and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotzko, And on today's episode, I'm joined by Nick Rossolillo. Welcome to the show, Nick.
1: Hey, Rebecca. Thanks for having me on. Excited to do this. Thank you so
0: much for coming on today. I've been really interested in learning more about the semiconductor industry. And as I was doing my research of who I should bring on, your name kept coming up. You have such a great YouTube channel, Chip Stock Investor, which I've already learned a ton from. And so I'm really interested to know how long have you been investing in chip stocks and how did you get interested in this?
1: Almost right from the get-go, I started buying Chip stocks. When I started buying individual stocks like 17 years ago, 05, 06, a chip stock got added to my portfolio right off the bat. Uh, So at that time, it was, I bought a company called On Semiconductor, which I think we might talk a little bit about later. That was my first pick. I had no idea what I was doing. In hindsight, I should have bought like NVIDIA or Texas Instruments and just sat on it. But I bought On Semi, which at the time was very commoditized manufacturer of power management chips but yeah it, i've been i've been buying chip stocks for a while i I've, I've always been interested in electronics and so when i started investing i got interested in semiconductors
0: Yeah, so I want to dive into a ton of the stocks that you're interested in today, but first I think it'd be super helpful to just go through an overview of the industry as a whole because today our economy can kind of be described as a chip economy because microchips have been applied to so many technological advancements and and different industries. So can you walk us through a brief overview of the semiconductor industry? How big of a market is it today and which sectors use the most chips?
1: Yeah, it's massive. And I think we're at a really interesting inflection point in the economy right now. So obviously, semiconductors are not new. They were invented like 70 years ago. But we're reaching this point in time where I think they're coming out of the office. You know, Historically, you have maybe like an army of office workers using computers. And maybe they have some computing network shoved in a closet somewhere. But we're reaching this interesting point where both the power of the chip, or I should say the, the co- computational power of the chip is increasing to a and in intersecting with the affordability of that computing power, where it now makes sense for all sectors of the economy to start using semiconductors. It makes sense. It makes sense for, for every sector, every industry. And again, not just office workers using computers, using PCs, actually embedding those chips into daily operations. So it could be an energy or a utility company. It could be a medical company that wants to connect its medical equipment to a network. Obviously, electric vehicles and the, I guess, smartphoneification of the car, of the cockpit of the car. So all of these different things kind of happening all at once. And the demand for chips is skyrocketing. So I'll, I'll throw some figures out here. Some pre pandemic figures, 470 billion was the global purchase of chips, the chips themselves back in 2018. And I I start with 2018 because 2019 was actually a down year. If you remember the US China trade war, and fast forward today in 2022, global chip sales were just shy of $600 billion. So it's a huge, huge market. That's again just the chips themselves, excluding a lot of the software, a lot of the equipment, the raw materials excluding all of that just the chips themselves almost 600 billion and it's on its way to 1 trillion dollars a year some estimates point to it being maybe 1.3 trillion dollars every single year by 2030 so if you're looking for a growth industry for the next 7-8 years that's a compound annual growth rate of 7 to 10% depending on if you want to use the 1 trillion or the 1.3 trillion estimate it's a huge market so that's a broad a broad overview Let's see, you asked about end markets as well, didn't you?
0: Yeah, for sure. You so can you, get into
1: that. Yeah, you had you had this chart here that was a really nice visual showing smartphones actually are currently the largest market for semiconductors currently. Smartphones passed up the PC last decade as the largest consumer of chips. So again, remember office workers, historically the users of computers, but then everybody became a user of a computer every single day, sometimes every minute of every single day, depending on how addicted <laughs> we are to our smartphone. But in the next decade, I think there's a growing anticipation that data centers will become the largest consumer of semiconductors. So data centers being the, the main computing unit of, cloud, of the cloud. And there's some, some different things we might get into later as to why that is. But those are the biggest end markets currently. Smartphone, PC, data centers and servers. I
0: want to dig into the growth in or the expected growth in sectors in a second. I first want to ask you about the different types of chips, because I think that'll help us grasp kind of this overview of the industry. What are the main types of chips?
1: Basically, there's two broad types of chips, analog and digital. So an analog chip, you can almost think of it as uh, just basically a sensor. Maybe if you want to compare it to like how our bodies work, our five senses. An analog chip is is kind of like that. It might be a type of chip that reads a radio wave. So that would be like a mobile device. Or it could be a power chip uh, that somehow interacts with or alters the flow of electricity through a computing system. It could be LIDAR or radar or a vision chip on a lot of new cars are getting these to help enable some advanced driver systems. Or maybe it's an industrial robot that uses one of these analog chips. So again, just think of like a sensor and kind of like our five senses help us interact with the world, the physical world around us. That's an analog chip for a computing system. And then the second broad type of chip is a digital chip. And so a digital chip works with ones and zeros. So you could compare these to like the brain, our brain. And so within digital chip, you also have two basic types. You have logic and memory. So memory, it stores information for later use, and then logic, it crunches the numbers. It, it's figuring stuff out. And so the language that these things use are ones and zeros, or bits. And those are completely meaningless, but you have countless ones and zeros lined up together. And that's kind of like the most basic alphabet for software code. So, so that's a, a digital chip. And oftentimes, these are like the most recognizable names, these digital chips so like your Intel, primarily a digital chip, designer and manufacturer, NVIDIA, AMD, both design digital chips. Micron is the top designer and manufacturer of memory chips in North America. So some very name brand type of companies fall within this digital chip segment of the industry.
0: And then which of those two chips is the market growth expected to grow the most? Like, Which has applications to, I guess, which industry...
1: That's an interesting question. So over the last decade, it has most definitely been the logic chips, especially the digital logic chips, more so more so than memory. And memory is kind of a different topic I think we'll touch on later. But so NVIDIA, now the world's largest semiconductor company, as measured by market cap, massive growth over the last decade from Logic. The world has this insatiable demand for these logic chips. And I think the chat GPT viral piece of software here the last few months kind of, I think, illustrates. It's not necessarily a new thing, but for the first time, I think a lot of consumers got introduced to AI behind software like chat GPT is a computing system designed by NVIDIA, or at least the heart of the system is designed by NVIDIA. So. Massive growth for those. But again, we're at an interesting inflection point in the economy now where for the next decade, analog chips, which have for a couple decades now been kind of a sleepy, kind of a commoditized part of the semiconductor industry, are all of a sudden also expected to grow at a very, very fast pace. And again, a lot of that is being driven by electric vehicles, new automobile technology, And kind of parallel to that, a lot of similar technology used in the modern car also getting applied to industrial robotics. So manufacturing, food production, healthcare, and so on.
0: Okay, that was very helpful because... I found that when you first dive into researching chip companies, there is so much to learn about how they work and which chip applies to what industry, which company makes what chip. And so I'm glad that you kind of broke that down for us today. And I want to dive into the expected growth of those different kind of sub industries a bit more because, yeah, I found that chart super helpful to just see the uh, projected growth. And so data centers is expected to actually grow the most by 2030 and beat even smartphone demand, which I thought was super cool. And then automotive is expected to grow a ton as well. And then personal computing a little bit. And what was the other one there?
1: Um, automotive, yeah, consumer electronics, uh, decent growth over the next decade. I mean, a market doubling in size over the next eight years is pretty impressive, but kind of one of the sleepier parts of, of the market. So yeah, PC consumer electronics, and internet service infrastructure, kind of the slowest moving parts of this industry.
0: Right. So then that data centers one, you kind of touched on that. That is driven then by AI demand, essentially?
1: It's become twofold. So over the last decade, it's been just general purpose cloud computing, or oftentimes you'll hear it referred to as HPC, high performance computing. So these massive data centers that operate huge applications. So like Meta, the parent for Facebook and Instagram, operates massive data centers. I think this is actually a little known fact, but Meta is not just a social media app. They actually do some really deep, impressive engineering behind the scenes because they own their own data centers. And to operate something that can support 3 billion plus users around the world... At people using it constantly, every second of every day, somewhere on the globe, uh, you have to have some massive infrastructure. So over the last decade, it was just the general purpose cloud. But now all of a sudden, it's AI, which oftentimes is is just getting embedded into the cloud somewhere. So yeah, that data center market, I think it's going to actually surpass. Some estimates still think the smartphone market will be the largest Consumer of chips by the end of this decade. I really firmly believe that data centers and servers, maybe like we could break that down further into public cloud, like Amazon AWS or Microsoft Azure. And then also companies building their own private cloud network as well, their own data center based network for personal use. Those two things combined, I think will outpace smartphones in the next, by the end of this decade. Some estimates actually pointing that memory chip demand will actually get sold into data centers more frequently than they do smartphones as early as next year, as early as 2024. And then logic chips, digital logic chips will will catch up and in total surpass smartphones.
0: Wow. And so, okay, so the main chips for data centers are memory and logic, you just said?
1: Correct. Yes. So data centers are primarily logic chip driven. So you have all this information flooding into these remote locations. You know, that maybe there's one somewhere in central BC, central Washington, central Oregon, Uh, in the Northwest. You have all this massive information flooding into these things from the internet or maybe from a a company's private network. So again, it's like the, the central nervous system. if if you want to compare a computing system to the human body, there is so much information flooding these things. And that massive amount of data is only getting larger as more devices get connected, more people get connected to these complex software systems and AI algorithms and whatnot. A massive amount of demand now coming from things like AI, and that's all going to happen
2: in a data center somewhere. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. this is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show.
0: Okay. So now I want to get into your top picks. And we talked about this before the episode, it might be helpful to break it down kind of by sub industries. So let's start with cloud AI. Who do you think has the, or which companies do you think offer the best long-term prospects in this sub-industry?
1: One of them I've already mentioned, NVIDIA, which in recent years, I think, has become a lot of people's favorite semiconductor stock. Hopefully, because the business is awesome and not just because the stock prices rocketed higher. But I think that is the top pick and the market has really caught on to it. So even though by revenue, actual sales, NVIDIA is not the world's largest semiconductor company. It is, however, the largest semiconductor company by market cap. And again, it's just being driven by this expectation that the data center and how much information needs to be crunched by these data centers is going to soar over the next 5 to 10 years. And NVIDIA has built itself as not just a platform company. It's it's another big tech company. like We can think of Google or Amazon as, as a platform business that other businesses build themselves on top of. NVIDIA is kind of that type of company. Now it's that important in the global economy. So as AI takes off, NVIDIA has the market cornered. If you're looking to build an AI system, you almost almost, keyword I think, almost can't design an AI system without NVIDIA being somewhere in the mix at some point. So I think that's the top pick. Expensive stock, ridiculously expensive stock. And it's just because of this expectation that they're going to gobble up the most of this market in the next 5 to 10 years. So I have a trio of them, though, that, that make up my top pick here in data center and AI. AMD, again, household name in years past, kind of the underdog to Intel, but they've really passed up Intel technologically in recent years. And then a third one that... Almost no one has heard of Marvell Technology Group. So this company makes a type of processor called a DPU, a data processing unit. And they made a string of acquisitions the last, the last four or five years to bolster their, their portfolio of different chip designs and ip that they can license out and so they're actually a key company when a company is trying to design high performance computing for the data center marvell is a a key ingredient in that in that work now as well
0: okay i want to jump back to nvidia for a second because i'm wondering you said they kind of have the market cornered why is that what is their competitive advantage that no other chip company can do or maybe are they trying to do and have failed
1: Actually, so we're recording this a day after NVIDIA's last earnings report. And on the earnings call yesterday, an an analyst asked CEO Jensen Wong that question precisely. And he pointed out, you know, they do, in fact, have competition. They've always had competition. NVIDIA's secret ingredient is the the GPU, the graphics processing unit, which historically is for high-end video game graphics on a PC or laptop. They figured out, though, years ago, that the technology that their chips utilize can also be used as a computing accelerator. So a CPU, which in times past was dominated, a type of chip dominated by Intel, has its limits as far as what it can handle when it comes to these really, really complex pieces of software where there's massive amounts of data the cpu can only process much of that data so fast but the way the gpu is designed is it can kind of chop up this massive amount of data into smaller pieces and then process it in multiple threads all at once and so it's being used as a computing accelerator you still need a cpu in a data center but like let's say if you want to if you want to run an application like let's say chat gpt And it's been trained on this incredibly huge set of information on the internet, let's say, uh, general information found on the internet. You can't just use CPUs. You have to use a GPU. And NVIDIA has been working on these things now for decades. And they're way, way far ahead, both AMD. AMD has GPUs. And they're also far ahead Intel technologically on these GPUs.
0: Okay. And so what happened to Intel? Because I think I heard on one of your YouTube videos that they just kind of became complacent. But could you explain what happened with them and why aren't they farther ahead?
1: I promise I won't rant about Intel like I have on on uh, my YouTube channel. Intel's problems really go back. I think we can go back a couple of decades if if we really want to trace Intel's problems today to their root source. So back in the early 2000s, a small company called Apple was working on this quaint little device called an iPhone. And they approached Intel and, and asked for help in designing a chip for it. And Intel took a pass. They said, you know, basically, that's, that's a neat little device, but uh, that's not what we do. And so Intel completely missed the boat on mobile computing technology, logic chips, digital logic chips they completely missed the the smartphone market. And so they really kind of pigeonholed themselves basically in CPUs, which is one of the original types of logic chips and they, they got pigeonholed in PCs and laptops and some data center CPUs. But again, as we just talked about, as these data centers get more complex and the software that needs to be run by them gets more complex, NVIDIA is actually ahead as all of these data centers, data center operators say, hey, we need new equipment to run an AI algorithm. They're not going to Intel for the stuff they're going to NVIDIA. So NVIDIA kind of helped. Create this market as well. So Intel has missed multiple shifts in computing technology. There's some other issues going on as well, um, where I think they, they could have turned things around earlier, but they were, they were just lazy. They got complacent. And after the handwriting was on the wall that, you know, the industry had shifted towards mobile and then later on cloud, they weren't quick enough to get up to speed with the times.
0: Okay, that is very interesting. I guess it just speaks to management. And I guess why good management is so important, as always. I want to jump back to NVIDIA now for a second, because, okay, their competitive advantage, you mentioned they are just far ahead in the GPU technology. And so so there are a couple competitors, though, catching up. How strong is that moat, would you say?
1: for NVIDIA. I think at this point, it's pretty strong. An interesting thing about NVIDIA is it's not just a semiconductor company anymore. They're also a software company. But maybe not the type of software that that we might think of. I, I think we've all gotten hooked on software as a service, SaaS, over the last decade. AI requires, and high-performance computing and AI require oftentimes a highly customized piece of software. It might be dedicated specifically to a business or maybe a specific segment within a business there is no one size fits all and so nvidia has done a fantastic job over the last couple of decades now developing this software that makes its chips its gpus usable for the user for the individual or the or the company that's buying them so they have this very wide portfolio of software now oftentimes that software is bundled together and given away for free with the GPU itself. But increasingly, the last few years, they have been branching off into more advanced software that they can actually charge for. So again, in the last earnings call just yesterday, they actually gave the most solid... Quantitative number to date on their software business. And they said it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So that's super nonspecific. I don't know if that means 200 million or if it's closer to $1 billion in software revenue, but it's becoming a very significant part of their company. And when you combine two things together like that, very well entrenched hardware that's very far ahead of its peers technologically with a software business that makes it very easy for customers to implement that hardware and put it to use as quickly as possible in their day-to-day operations, you now all of a sudden have a company that is going to be very difficult to uproot from the very fabric of the economy. So I think NVIDIA has a very, very strong mode at this point. And that's reflected, obviously, in in the sky-high valuation. One-year forward earnings expectations of well over 40. That's a very, very high price, even for a semiconductor company, growing as fast as they are.
0: What is your view on the current valuation then today? Because I think anyone listening and if they do their own research could see that growth story and those prospects. But at the end of the day, if you pay too high of a price, then that eats away your return. And so what do you think of the current price and valuation?
1: I'm sure you have a diverse base of listeners. So if someone's looking for a quick trade to profit off of, NVIDIA is probably not what you're looking for. But if you expect to be a business owner, you want to own NVIDIA stock like it's, it's your business for the long term, I think a dollar cost averaging plan still makes sense even at this point. There's definitely going to be some volatility this year because of that high valuation. A lot of growth already baked into the price. But if you're looking 5-10 years down the road and even beyond that, this company has a ton of potential.
0: Now I want to move on to mobility because this is a sector that a lot of our listeners probably know well. So who are the top leaders in this space and who do you think has the best chance for outperformance?
1: So old sleepy Qualcomm, I think is the obvious place to start here, right? This is almost as close as we'll get to a monopoly in in the technology industry. So Qualcomm has deep roots the, the business was founded on mobile technology in fact it has this segment they report their their financials in two basic segments and one of them is called QTL Qualcomm technology licensing uh, it generates these days upwards of one and a half billion dollars in revenue every single quarter and generates earnings before tax over seventy percent and this is just patents that they license out to companies that want to use, Qualcomm's mobile technology, which there's not a lot of other places or alternatives that you can go. And so Qualcomm has this this great baseline business that's incredibly profitable, incredibly stable. And so I think this is a good place to start. Then they have this other segment, QCT, Qualcomm CDMA technology. That's basically the chips. Um, They design chips. And then when that chip gets sold primarily into an Android phone, they make some money off of that sale. So smartphones, tablets, even some PCs, uh, Qualcomm doing a lot of work to get more of a presence in the PC and laptop segment, there's a really good chance, be it an Android or currently anyways, for the time being an Apple iPhone, you're going to have a Qualcomm chip, some, some Qualcomm circuitry in there.
0: Interesting, because I thought that was Apple specifically was one of the largest customers for TSM.
1: Yes, this is where I think maybe so we recently put together a semiconductor industry flowchart. And maybe I should mention that and we can share that here because it's this is a complicated web of different companies and different suppliers. So Apple designs its own chips using a company called ARM Holding. Currently, ARM is a subsidiary of SoftBank over in japan softbank bought it back in 2016 so apple purchases the patent or licenses i should say the patent from arm to design its processors for its iphones its ipads and now also the macbook so if you have a macbook or a MacBook Pro with an M1 or, or now an M2 chip in it, that's powered by ARM. And it's a different business model. So Apple basically buys the license and the rights to the chip patent. They customize it to their their needs. And then once they're done designing it, they send it over to TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, to actually have the chip made.
0: Yeah, that was super helpful because I do want to ask you about Taiwan Semiconductor, where it kind of falls on your list and your thinking. It got quite popular when Berkshire bought it, and I think among the value investing community, and then they later sold it. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on TSM.
1: Yeah, we should definitely start with Warren Buffett. And Berkshire Hathaway buying four billion dollars worth of, of TSMC, and then a mere three months later, they sold eighty-six percent of the stake they had just purchased. It's a fantastic company. I, I will I will say that it's a wonderful company. They they actually port Intel. I think this just kind of illustrates how far behind they are. TSMC passed up Intel years ago as far as manufacturing technology capabilities. So Intel has lost its lead in designing chips. AMD has passed them up on on multiple fronts in designing the chips. And then Taiwan Semiconductor has passed up Intel in manufacturing technology and they they manufacture a majority of the world's most advanced chips. So for smartphones and data centers, primarily. So TSM is a wonderful business. I think Berkshire Hathaway ended up with $4 billion of this in its portfolio, not because of Warren Buffett, definitely not Charlie. I think it was Todd Combs and, and Ted Wesley that more than likely made this purchase in the third quarter, basically summer 2022. And then a colleague of mine, uh, Billy Duberstein, pointed this out. He was listening to Charlie Munger on the Daily Journal annual meeting in mid-February, and Charlie Munger hinted at why they probably sold it. And Munger basically said he hates businesses like TSMC. His words, he hates them. Because to stay ahead of your competitors, you're constantly having to take your profits and reinvest them To develop new technology. So instead of getting most of the profits back as a shareholder, you're left with a fraction of the profits because most of the profits get reinvested to buy new equipment and develop new tech.
0: That will never change over time, then, essentially.
1: Probably not. If we maybe say, like, the human brain is the gold standard of computing efficiency, you know, you eat food and and our brains can do absolutely wonderful things. On very minimal amounts of energy. Yes, uh, computing technology will always have room for improvement. And so, and then of course, there's this whole quantum computing thing that is probably still more than a decade away from being uh, an actual commercially viable thing. So there's that too that will change the game. And you have, yeah, this constant necessity to keep funneling money into capital expenditures. The machines needed to manufacture chips are. Tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of bucks a pop. And it's just a a never-ending cycle. So TSM, absolutely wonderful business. But I think a lot of investors should really understand that level of capital intensity needed for the company to remain a wonderful business. It's not an easy industry to
2: participate in. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing.
2: This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com/slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement.
3: Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability, and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover support at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show.
0: And so will their main growth then going forward be in smartphones then too for TSM, or are they branching out and will they gain market share in those other growing industries?
1: It will be a smartphone as well as a data center and AI-based business. They will get growth from both of those industries. They have begun expanding on the facilities that they already broke ground on, I guess, in Arizona. They're building some new fabs in Arizona. And Tesla has apparently secured some supply uh, from TSMC. But that's probably more than likely, again, the logic chip itself, not the analog chips. TSMC does not dabble in analog. They are a digital chip specialist. So kind of like the brains of, of the modern vehicle, that's probably an area they could get some growth from as well.
0: Okay. So they aren't directly competing with NVIDIA for that market share then?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. NVIDIA is a customer, as is AMD. Basically, anyone who is a digital chip designer is more than likely... A TSMC customer. Intel wants to compete in this market. So currently TSMC and Samsung are the two biggest third party foundries. So if you design a chip, you're basically going to one of those two, TSMC or Samsung. The problem with Samsung is, is they also manufacture chips for themselves. So you're kind of, um, you kind of have a built in competitor there. If you have a smartphone chip and you hand over your smartphone chip design to Samsung, who also just so happens to design and manufacture their own smartphone chips as well, you have a bit of a conflict of interest there. TSMC is unique because they are the only third-party foundry that does not compete with their customers. They only manufacture. So this is a market Intel wants to get into. But again, they will also have that issue where they design their own chips So anyone who gives a design to Intel to manufacture for them, you have a built-in competitor there.
0: Right. So TSM seems like they have a pretty strong competitive moat and it would take a lot to catch up with them and many years, at least even for someone as big as Intel to even catch up to what they're already doing. So what are your thoughts on its current valuation right now? And I guess long-term prospects.
1: I think it is a decent value based off of what I can see. I think it's a decent value. There is an expected rebound. So currently, we're we're in the midst of a slump, of of a chip slump. And it is primarily logic chips, digital chips for PCs and smartphones. So that's a substantial part of TSMC's business. I think it's a decent value, though, because there's an expectation that that market recovers starting the second half
2: of 2023.
0: Right. Yeah, it seemed like a few companies communicated in their guidance that they think the first half of the year is going to be bad and then they said second half will be rosy. I guess in terms of near-term risks to valuations, who do you see these short-term headwinds affecting the most?
1: The semiconductor industry is a funny place. It is a very far-sighted industry. If you believe the market tries to price in 3 to 6 months, let's say, maybe Maybe a year of information down the road in, in figuring out a fair price for, for a stock. Semiconductors are six to 12 months or longer. So actually when the bear market started in 2022, semiconductor investors were already having to listen to Outlook and, and Outlook for 2023 and this brewing slowdown in demand for PCs and smartphones a year or more in advance. So a lot of the a lot of the current problems with the economy and the semiconductor space specifically are actually already baked into the share price. I think what we're now looking at is not so much what could go wrong, but what could slow down the recovery or delay the recovery of the chip industry. I think that's what we're really looking at at this point. One area that is particularly susceptible is memory chips. So again, logic, memory is very price Elastic, the price on, on a memory chip, because it's a basic commodity in a computing system, the price on a basic memory chip will fluctuate wildly depending on, uh, how much supply is out there and how much demand is on the market. So with this current slump in, in PC, PC and smartphone demand and companies trying to cut supply back memory chip companies have been wiped out. So Micron has been hit very hard. But I think that's one area where if the market gets wind of a delay in the chip and the chip overall chip industry recovery, it's probably the memory market that is going to be the most sensitive to that. And it's going to pick up on anything going wrong the soonest.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I forgot to ask you about two more industries. And I want to get to that before we talk about more, I guess, the relative valuation of all these stocks. I want to make sure we have them all covered. First is the automotive industry, because you mentioned how that's supposed to be a growing industry with electric vehicles. So which companies are expected to gain the most traction in this industry?
1: The obvious pick here is Texas Instruments. Probably the stock that I should have bought first 17 years ago not on semi texas instruments is is an absolute giant about three quarters of their business is analog chips so there they have they're ready to go for this coming boom in in automotive technology and to a lesser extent industrial robotics uh, they're ready for it they have a wide portfolio of sensors power chips If it's analog, you name it, Texas Instruments is probably there. They have a wonderful manufacturing base to work from. They have some of the lowest costs in the industry. Some of the lowest costs, I should say, maybe in manufacturing, period. Not just manufacturing chips, but just manufacturing. They have done an absolutely incredible job of driving down their costs. And they have ridiculously high profit margins as, as a result. So I think TXN is a fantastic bet. On Semi, though... Almost two decades later, um, I'm warming up to this one again. It was a commoditized business when I first bought it many years ago. But today, with the advent of electric vehicles, renewable energy, there's a new type of chip substrate called silicon carbide. So silicon, obviously, obviously that, you know, that's almost synonymous with the chip itself. You can call chips semiconductors sometimes silicon. That's what they're made out of. Silicon carbide has carbon kind of blended into the mix, and it's able to handle much higher voltages and much higher heat, which makes it a great type of chip for EVs and renewable energy. And OnSemi is pouring a lot of investment into into SIC, silicon carbide. There's also a small, very, very tiny equipment, chip fab equipment company called Air Test Systems that I have a very small position in, but they, they provide equipment that is essentially quality control for silicon carbide chips. And this is a really interesting one, I think, that could get a lot of benefit from a growing automotive technology market.
0: I like Texas Instruments is one that is not super popular. I don't know. Maybe that's just what I read, but it doesn't seem like it's as popular as TSM or NVIDIA and other ones like that, which benefit investors because typically then the price isn't as high. It's not run up.
1: You're absolutely right. It's a fantastic... I think it's a fantastic value right now. It's one I have considered adding to my portfolio. Yeah, it's just not one of those like kind of sexy high super high growth logic chip names like Nvidia or AMD but I think that's a real shame because they're 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 actually forecasting compound annual growth of 10% a year through 2030. There's nothing wrong with average revenue growth of 10% a year plus Texas Instruments has this long standing policy of returning 100% of their free cash flow to shareholders. So all of a sudden you're looking at an investment that is probably going to compound at, you know, a mid teens percentage on average for the better part of a decade. That's a pretty good long-term investment if you ask me.
0: Yeah. And so we talked about so many different companies today, and you made such a great case for all of them in these different industries where they can capture more market share. And I guess I'm wondering, given that and kind of the the near-term risks that could be ahead, which do you think are the best value right now? And for a long-term investor, because we're not looking to sell it in two years or something, but which ones do you think are the best price right now for a value investor to scoop up?
1: Yeah, Texas Instruments is compelling. I think in addition to that, I I do like Qualcomm. Obviously, the smartphone market is not a super high growth market like it was the last two decades. But there is still going to be some growth there. In addition to that, Qualcomm is actually taking everything it does in smartphones... And now applying it to the automotive industry. So they're they're actually developing and and getting some really good success selling their logic chips into automobiles. In addition to that, they do have a small software component as well attached to that auto business. I, I think Qualcomm is is very cheap and it's kind of been left for dead here as of late because of the the decline in smartphone sales, but that's going to come back eventually. And along the way, they're getting some nice growth from automotive. I think AMD is still very compelling as well even though it it's this darling from the 2010s. They completely turned their business around and overtook Intel on so many different fronts. But I do still like this company. They are so far ahead in uh, CPU technology specifically for data centers. Intel still has like an, an installed base of like over 90% for data centers for for the cloud. So as these companies need to update the equipment because chips eventually they either wear out and need replaced or the technology has just advanced so much that a company is forced to rip it out and replace it with something new. As they rip out the old Intel hardware, I think there's a really, really compelling argument to be made that AMD continues to gobble up market share at Intel's expense in the next decade. So I think they're not participating as much in the accelerated computing part of the market like NVIDIA is. But the CPU space is going to grow, I think, substantially uh, because of data centers and AI. And so I think AMD is also a compelling value for for the next decade as well. And then
0: what about... Are there any companies that you talked about today that you love them, but not at this price?
1: I love NVIDIA. I don't love the price. That's, That's the most obvious one right now. But again, I think we're at this particular point where even if the price, if the valuation, I should say, not the price, not the stock price, if the valuation feels uncomfortable, it's really important to remember these semiconductor businesses, they have such far-sighted vision because it's expensive to manufacture chips. They are laying plans down for two, three, five, 10 years down the road with their customers, with their with their partners. So we, you really have to like look at valuation one year or more out to effectively value what a fair price is to buy a chip stock today. So I would say overall, there's a lot of very attractive, attractively priced, attractively valued companies in the semiconductor market at the moment.
0: That was excellent. I think I'll end it there. I want to thank you so much for coming on today. I learned a ton from this conversation and I'm excited to watch more of your YouTube videos and keep up to date with this industry. But before I let you go, where can our audience go to learn more about you and everything that you do?
1: So the primary outlet these days for all of our research is the YouTube channel Chip Stock Investor.
0: Perfect. I will make sure to link that in the show notes for our listeners. Thank you so much, Nick.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the invite.
0: All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you left a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, make sure to sign up for our free newsletter, We Study Markets, which goes out daily and will help you understand what's going on in the markets in just a few minutes. So with that all said, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network every wednesday we teach you about bitcoin and every saturday we study billionaires and the financial markets to access our show notes transcripts or courses go to the this show is for entertainment purposes only before making any decision consult a professional this show is copyrighted by the investors podcast network written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting